Hello and welcome to this podcast. I hope you've been enjoying this Advent teaching series as much as I have. As we face a return to stricter measures of isolation again, it means so much to know that we are truly not alone, that Jesus is no stranger to all of our felt human experiences. Today we're going to look at how Jesus himself walked through one of the hardest things he calls us to do as his followers. Two weeks ago, John led us through how to write our own breath prayers by picking a favorite name for God and pairing it together with a yearning that we have. These prayers are deeply personal. They say a lot about where we are and how we feel. What if we can know the breath prayer that Jesus says during the most intense moment of his earthly life, during the time he hung on the cross? I mean, that's high real estate breathing right there. When you are dying from progressive asphyxiation, when every breath causes acute physical agony and brings you one step closer to inevitable death, you have to be yearning for and acknowledging something pretty badly to even be praying it out loud and not just in your head. But we know what Jesus' birth prayer was. Luke writes it down for us in our passage for today. I want to read you the whole passage. It's just three paragraphs tucked into the 23rd chapter of Luke, beginning in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The breath prayer Jesus says on the cross is this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The first and most basic thing we learn from this prayer is that Jesus felt he was wronged. There was something to be forgiven. This is so obvious to us now, but remember, at that time, everyone was going along with the crucifixion. No one was standing up to say anything against it. But these words mean that Jesus knew he was being wronged. His suffering was not just any suffering, but it was the result of being wronged by someone else, and he felt the hurt of that. Has anyone ever slandered you or unfairly made you feel like a public failure? Jesus knows what that feels like. Have your family or friends ever betrayed or abandoned you? Has someone you were counting on ever let you down deeply? Jesus knows what that feels like. Have hateful words ever been said to you by strangers? 
Has someone ever labeled you by your ethnicity? Jesus knows what that feels like. Have you ever been hurt by the apathy of an authority figure? Have you ever been the victim of someone's spiteful jealousy or greed? Jesus knows what that feels like. All of this must have been at the forefront of Jesus' thoughts and feelings if this was the kind of prayer that came to his lips once he was on the cross. The first step to forgiveness is acknowledging that we have been hurt or wronged. It takes vulnerability to admit that rather than to ignore it, transfer it onto or into something else, or become bitter and resentful without really acknowledging why. Forgiveness always begins by naming the hurt and facing the pain. The second basic thing we learn from this prayer is that forgiveness is so important to do. Because, of course, Jesus prays this not just to show us that he understands our hurt, but to give us an example to follow. In this passage, people are telling Jesus to do one thing. We hear it repeated three times. The rulers say, save yourself. The soldiers say, save yourself. The first thief says, save yourself. What are they really saying? They are saying, change your circumstances. Get down off the cross. Get revenge on your enemies. Show us your power by changing your circumstances. And that's often what we want too, right? We might say we forgive someone, but really we are still rooting for their demise. Really we are still holding back for the wrong to be righted or at least acknowledged. But Jesus shows his power here, not by changing his circumstances, which he could have done, but by choosing instead to forgive. Deliverance from the pain of being wronged does not come through vengeance or bitterness, but through forgiveness. Until you forgive them, that person still has a hold on your life. You are still under their control, and the person you are destroying the most is yourself. St. Augustine said, Resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Louis Smead said, To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. Now, as we'll talk about in a bit, judgment is coming, and that is also clearly not far from Jesus' mind. But he does not withhold forgiveness for that moment. He chooses to forgive in the midst of his pain. We must be as intentional about forgiveness as Jesus was right in the moment of pain and continually in every moment when we feel freshly hurt, when we see new consequences of what happened, when we're triggered to remember. We have to continually choose to forgive. So how do we do this? You know, most of what I've said so far is what popular self-help culture would also tell you. You have to face your pain. You have to forgive someone else to free yourself. But this next step, the how of it, is where the gospel differs. Our culture will tell you that to do this, you have to look into yourself to find the strength to forgive. It's actually a twist on the same mantra we hear from the rulers and soldiers and the first thief. Save yourself. If you can't do it, it means you have to try harder, find some new technique. But the gospel says that none of us can reach deep enough to do that on our own. Not really and not continually, not if we're being honest with ourselves. The gospel says that we can only forgive others when we've experienced God's forgiveness for us. There is a very direct relationship between the two. You can see this in Jesus' teachings. If you look up all the times he specifically talks about forgiveness, at least half of those times he emphasizes the same primary point. 
In the Lord's Prayer, he says, Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Matthew 6, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Mark 11, Forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you. The point is that there is a link between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others. There is a reason why Jesus says these words of forgiveness of all the times in his life during this moment while he is hanging on the cross. He is giving us a visual object lesson. He is pairing forgiveness in the cross, illustrating the connection between our ability to forgive others and the degree to which we have truly experienced God's forgiveness of us. This is the third and last basic truth from this passage, and I want to spend some time on it because I think so many of us find ourselves struggling to forgive others because we haven't experienced true confession and forgiveness from God. There are two functional barriers to this, going too easy on ourselves and going too hard on ourselves. So let's look at both. The first barrier happens when we go too easy on ourselves. Have you ever wondered what's going on in this passage when Jesus addresses the weeping woman? The story Luke tells here is found in all the Gospels, but Luke is the only one who records Jesus' prayer for forgiveness. And interestingly, he's also the only one who records this strange speech Jesus gives to the woman. In verse 28, But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves. And he goes on to talk about how one day they will call the mountains and hills to fall down on them. Jesus is talking here about Judgment Day. Hosea 10 and Revelation 6 have the same exact description of the day when we will face God. What's going on here? Is Jesus saying it's wrong to cry? No, we know from David's sermon last week that Jesus was present to the sorrow of others and cried with them himself. And this term, daughters of Jerusalem, was an affectionate one. What Jesus is saying here is, you are weeping, but you are weeping for the wrong thing. You see a dead man walking, but what you need to realize is that you are a dead woman walking. One day you will need to come in your sin before a holy God. And it is only once you see that, once you weep for what your sin means before God, that you can grasp the point of my walk to the cross. Too often, what bothers us about our sin is not what it means before God, but how it disappoints or inconveniences us. We don't like how it makes us feel guilty or embarrassed, causes impractical or negative consequences. We're more bothered by what it does to us than what it does to God. We're more sorry for ourselves than we are sorrowful for the sin. We're more full of self-pity than we are full of grief. And so instead of confessing to God, we actually confess to ourselves. Instead of receiving God's forgiveness, we receive our own pardon. Rather than experiencing God's grace, we experience our own grace. And our own grace, our own excuses, never stretch quite as far for other people as they do for ourselves. So it's no wonder we then find ourselves struggling to forgive others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer perhaps put it best in this line from his book, Life Together. We must ask ourselves whether we have not often been deceiving ourselves with our confession of sin to God, whether we have not rather been confessing our sins to ourselves and also granting ourselves absolution. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. 
I find that when I think I am asking God to forgive me, I am often in reality, unless I watch myself very carefully, asking him to do something quite different. I am asking him not to forgive me, but to excuse me. But there is all the difference in the world between forgiving and excusing. If you had a perfect excuse, you would not need forgiveness. If the whole of your actions needs forgiveness, then there was no excuse for it. But the trouble is that what we call asking God's forgiveness very often really consists in asking God to accept our excuses. We go away imagining that we have repented and been forgiven when all that has really happened is that we have satisfied ourselves with our own excuses. Jesus is saying, you have to weep for your sin. You have to be grieved by what it means to God, not just bothered by what it means to you. You have to take full responsibility for your sin without excuse, like people who would call down the mountains and hills to hide them because they see their sin before a holy God who gave everything for them and say, who can stand? In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story about a servant who was forgiven a huge debt, but then turned around and did not forgive someone who owed him a much smaller debt. That servant was delivered to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And Jesus said, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. The key is to see the scope of the debt that God has forgiven for you. As long as your confession is just a form of self-pardon, you're like that servant still paying off his own debt, working on your own strength, excusing yourself on your own grace, telling yourself you'll try harder only to mess up again. Without true confession, there's no true forgiveness. There's no lasting change, no real transformation, no lasting ability to forgive others. The second functional barrier to experiencing the forgiveness of God is not going too easy on ourselves, but going too hard on ourselves. This happens when we can't forgive ourselves. We've been forgiven by other people, but we can't forgive ourselves. We've confessed and confessed, but we cannot overcome our guilt. We become crushed under the weight of our own self-judgment, of our own standard. And this is never the nature of true confession. 2 Corinthians 7 says that godly grief leads to repentance. And Matthew 5 says that those who mourn shall be comforted. Confession, conviction when it's from the Holy Spirit, leads not to shame or self-destruction, but rather opens us to the experience of being forgiven and the freedom that comes on the other side. So what's going on when we can't forgive ourselves? People often talk about needing self-forgiveness and self-compassion, of turning towards yourself with the same compassion you would offer someone else. And there is good in that sentiment. But taken as an end to itself, it can evolve into the same kind of self-absolution we just talked about. The solution comes not from simply being kinder to ourselves, but examining what is at the heart of our self-judgment. Tim Keller talks about how, over years of counseling people with this issue, he's realized that when God has forgiven you, when other people have forgiven you, but you can't forgive yourself, it means that you have a higher God. You are looking to something higher or something else for significance, for your real meaning, and you have broken that God's will and it won't forgive you. If you can't forgive yourself for having disappointed your parents, for example, even though your parents have forgiven you, then you are still looking for your real meaning from the expectations they had of you. 
If you can't forgive yourself for hurting your children, even though God and your children have forgiven you, then you are still looking to parenting for your ultimate source of significance. Our idols don't forgive easily, and if we hold ourselves to their standards, we will tend to hold others to those standards as well. If we can't forgive ourselves, it will be just as hard to extend forgiveness rather than judgment to others. How do we release ourselves from self-judgment? We repent, not of feeling guilty, but of not resting in Jesus. We turn from any idols. We ask him to show us our belovedness, to rest in his unconditional love for us. We have to hear that love when we hear Jesus' prayer. We have to see that love when we look at the cross. Martin Luther King preached a sermon on these words, Father, forgive them, in the spring of 1960. And in it, he says, There are probably no words in all the New Testament that express more clearly and solemnly the magnanimity of Jesus' spirit. Here we see love at its best. We have to see his love. Otherwise, confession just becomes another way to justify ourselves. Forgiving others can even become a way to justify or serve ourselves. But we don't confess to earn God's forgiveness. That's not how the love of God works. His love is unconditional. Jesus said this prayer before anyone had repented. We confess not to earn his goodwill, but to restore our relationship with him as a response to his love. There's a saying, the gospel tells us that we're more sinful than we ever dared admit and more loved than we ever dared hope. It's both. You can't hold one without the other. You can't go too easy or too hard on yourself. We must both weep for our sinfulness and rest fully in the unconditional love of Jesus to truly experience God's forgiveness for us. We must be both deeply aware of the debt God has forgiven us and be completely filled up with his love in order to forgive others. And here's the thing. The connection between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others goes both ways. Yes, our functional experience of God's forgiveness affects our ability to do that for others. But our functional experience of forgiving others also affects our ability to experience God's love in and for us in new ways. One of the books on my parents' shelf that I loved reading growing up was Corey Ten Boom's biography, The Hiding Place. Her father was a watchmaker who helped Jews escape the Nazis during World War II. Eventually, they were caught, their family was separated, and she was sent with her sister Betsy to Ravensbrück concentration camp. Her sister died there just 12 days before Corey was released. After the war, she worked in rehabilitation centers for concentration camp survivors and traveled as a public speaker. She describes an experience she had after speaking at a church one day. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, a former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing, how grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. 
Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. In the end, we cannot generate the love it takes to forgive someone on our own. But the moment Jesus prayed this prayer for us to follow, he also gave us the ability to follow it by dying on the cross to free us from the slavery of resentment and bitterness. When Jesus said this breath prayer on the cross, he was acknowledging that he understands the pain of being wronged. He was living out the importance of doing a command that he had taught. But most importantly, he was providing the way to do it by dying on the cross for our sins so that one day we will weep no more. So that one day we too can be with him in paradise. That's the promise he leaves with us. Emmanuel, he entered our world as God with us and he died with words of forgiveness upon his lips so that we could be with him for all eternity. Who is Jesus inviting you to forgive today? What intentional choices are you being called to make to stop destructive cycles and restore relationships? May we see that we are people who both deeply need forgiveness and have freely received it through Jesus. May the God who understands how it feels to face the pain and choose to forgive give us his love by the power of the Holy Spirit to do the same for others this Advent season.